This evening's reading is Acts 17, 16 to 34, page 1113. In Athens, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Sozic philosophers began to debate with him. Sorry, Stoic, sorry. (laughs) Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. 
At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you that you did this so that we would seek you and that we would reach out and find you. God, we pray that you would open our hearts and our our minds tonight. Lord, that you would move um, and uh, that uh, you would show us what it is uh, you are calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1962... A young Canadian couple, Dawn and Carol, and their seven-month-old child left the comforts of modern Canada and traveled across the world through dodgy airplane rides and uh, a long journey. And following God's call to preach the gospel to the Sawi people in Papua New Guinea. It, it's hard to tell this story without it sounding quite sensational and truly outside of our world. The Sawi people had a rich tapestry of beliefs, with cannibalism of their rival villages being central to their understanding of the world and power dynamics. And perhaps even more difficult than that for Dawn and Carol's attempts to share the wonder of God's love for them was that the Sawi people prized deception and treachery above all else, always getting the upper edge on someone through your ability to deceive Imagine telling the story of the Last Supper and the crowd cheering for Judas and his master stroke and seeing Jesus as the dupe who fell for it. How on earth could God speak truth into this world? Where in the Bible was there a connection beyond just condemning everything there was about the Sawi people? Back here in London... We're praying for revival in our city, in our community, in our church. And as we pray for God's spirit to be poured out on this nation, in our evenings, as Emily said, we're taking some time to remind ourselves that the gospel is unchained. Thinking of our our talks the last few weeks, the good news that Jesus came back to life and offers forgiveness to all. It opens charts and changes lives like Lydia. It destroys jails, but saves jailers, like we saw in the Philippian jailer. It causes a violent uproar by those who reject it, as we saw in Thessalonica and Berea last week. And tonight we see a gospel that fits. Good news that isn't tied to one corner of the earth, that isn't the curious belief of a particular culture. It's not derived Judaism. But the message of Jesus' kingdom touches the deepest longings of every heart, in every language, in every culture. Now, Paul finds himself in Athens at the start of our passage tonight. After being chased out by rioting mobs from Thessalonica and Berea. Luke says that um, in verse, what is this? Uh, Where are we? Verse 19, I believe it is? Verse 16. Um, that Paul is more or less just waiting around for his ministry partners to come so they can move on to the next place. 
He's been safely deposited there, and he's waiting. And as he normally does, Paul spends time in the Jewish synagogues reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks who believed in the Jewish God, the so-called devout Greeks. This is Paul's bread-and-butter ministry, proclaiming the Messiah to the Jewish people scattered across the Roman Empire. He leans heavily on the prophets of the Hebrew Bible to show the Jews that Jesus was the one they were already waiting for. Paul and his audience shared a culture, and translating the gospel wasn't uh, as necessary. But in Athens, Paul has other things on his mind. As we see again in verse 16, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. You see, Paul's ministry in the Greek world has had a rather tough pattern. He, one, he engages with the Jews in the synagogue, and some of those respond and come to faith in Jesus. B, the Jewish leaders are, get, get envious and angry at people turning to Jesus as their savior. C, those leaders then stir up the general populace, the Greeks, against Paul. And D, Paul ends up getting stoned or thrown in jail or simply run out of town. Now the question for us tonight is why did the Greeks care about a Jewish Messiah? The Jews were already established within their, their cities And why was this a problem for the Greeks? Well, the Jewish leaders saw that Jesus was welcoming Greeks to believe who turned to him. But he still claimed to be the only God. A new God wasn't a problem in the Greek world. But this new God didn't want to share the stage with all the other gods and cults and temples that dominated public life in Greek cities. Often, this was also a political concern for them as well. The Greek leaders had welcomed the worship of Roman emperors as a key part of keeping their Roman overlords happy and making Roman rule a bit more palatable to the general public through lovely monuments and uh, well-funded public festivals. If this Jesus was rejecting all these other gods, including the emperor, things could get very complicated for everyone in Greece. And this fear has been played upon by the Jewish leaders to rid themselves of Paul preaching Jesus the Messiah. But Paul hasn't really directly engaged with these Greek temples and beliefs. He's not taken on that challenge before he gets to Athens. And now maybe it was his violent exits from Berea and Thessalonica that made Paul look about as he went through Athens. And he felt the weight of the challenge His heart was provoked in some translations, or he was greatly distressed. He was moved as he saw, uh, as he saw the gulf between the message of Jesus and the popular beliefs swarming about him. How could Jesus' voice be heard above the din of the chants to Zeus and parties for Apollo and temples to Athena? Indeed, how can Jesus' light shine in our day? amidst floods of notifications and exams to study for, Harry Styles going on world tour, and rockets going to to Mars. And so in verse 17, Paul turns his energy to the question of how does the gospel fit into the world of Athens? And he starts really naturally, as we should. He talks to the people around him. Athens was a really good place to do this. It thought of itself as the intellectual hub of the world and as being very religiously tolerant. 
Religious tolerance creates a door for God's truth. I've often read verse 21, um, where Luke writes, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. I've always read that as being quite dismissive, and perhaps Luke is being a bit judgmental, creating a picture of people hanging around, scrolling TikTok, dying for something to entertain themselves. But I really do believe that this openness is part of the opportunity that Paul sees in Athens. In our moment, there are many people that we know that are willing to listen. Perhaps they're curious about what goes on in our churches, or confused about why people still think Jesus is relevant. Whenever I'm tempted to feel that our modern life and my, my life is, is closed to the gospel, I have to remind myself of my time at university in a so-called hostile liberal environment. And the moment that our Christian fellowship started asking people about Jesus on the quad, we had dozens of connections. People started coming to faith and reading the Bible. We're closer to home. Our own parish visitors, led by Edmund and Richard, have had made so many connections with folks just outside these doors just by knocking on the door and asking. A tolerant age can be an open door. And so Paul engages with the philosophers, the the people in the market, the Zeus worshipers, and he tries to explain who Jesus is. And those listening are really struck. This man isn't really explaining a Jewish belief. It's not a lecture on Jewish culture. And he's not arguing for a new philosophy. This Jesus is something new. And they aren't sure about it. The gospel needs explaining. It needs translating into their world. So Paul is brought before the Areopagus Council. Now, this council, we have to spend some time understanding this, because it's, it's kind of a ruling body in Athens. So not only was it placed for intellectual discussion, but it was also, um, it played the role of judging serious criminals, as well as, and this is key, welcoming and authorizing new gods and temples in Athens as a way of accommodating them into public life and maintaining religious order. This accommodating attitude was how they made emperor worship fit in right alongside Athena and the gang. And who doesn't love another festival day? So, and the council was also, as I said, a, a seat of intellectual discussion, a place where new ideas could be given a hearing. This is the forum where in ages past, um, before Paul comes, the great philosopher Socrates was condemned to death. Interestingly, though he was tried for his philosophy, he was condemned for preaching foreign gods, much like Paul has just been said to do. The lines between social, religious, and philosophical thought were much more blurry when we come to this council. But the important thing here is that the council was hearing Paul to judge whether his new god fit whether they should allow a temple to be built or a festival to be incorporated to serve this God. Would this God be worth their time and investment? Is this God worth your time and investment? And Paul talks about God who fits. Instead of quoting the Hebrew Bible at them, he quotes from their poets and their philosophers. Many biblical scholars have gone deep into how this speech draws deeply on central tenets from both Stoic and Epicurean philosophy. 
With the Spirit's guidance, Paul looked into this pagan, idol-filled world, and he saw an echo of God's truth. He sees how God has been preparing their hearts and minds in Athens for this moment when Jesus comes to be their Savior and Judge. What's incredible knowing that is looking at this message, how obviously Christian it is. There's nothing here that it's all a compromise of what God said in the Hebrew Bible or what Jesus taught during his ministry. But for the Athenian listeners, it would have felt very recognizable as a message that fits within their own culture and thought. Imagine that, the good news of Jesus being for all people everywhere in their own language and culture. But, God does, but Paul doesn't only preach a God that fit in. He shows a God that's bigger, a God that fills the gaps and answers the contradictions at the heart of Greek religious life. How can a God who's created you be taken care of by temples and festivals? God doesn't fit in neatly alongside Caesar, but it's Paul's translation of the gospel that lets people feel it. It lets them see their need for God. Believing still requires an act of faith. For the Greeks, with their tradition of scientific inquiry, Paul saying that the gods who set up the natural order turned around and undid it to raise Jesus from the dead and to promise a resurrection to everyone else is something to be scoffed at, truly absurd, which sounds familiar in our day and age. For them... The Areopagus founding charter, their constitution, even states, we must judge here while the accused is alive because there is no resurrection. Perhaps those who start to sneer at Paul are pointing to an inscription saying, we can't honor this new God. Who does Paul think he is to come in here, quote our philosophers, and then to say, it's not we who judge, but God will judge us? To many in Athens, and indeed in our day, that's just not how the whole God thing works. God is a comfort. He's a fun character in stories, an excuse for a good party, a way to explain some of the difficult things in life. But God is not a God who judges. And he certainly doesn't give us hope for new life. But as Paul preaches the gospel to them, For some, the penny drops. Even learned, influential leaders you wouldn't expect, like Dionysus, are convicted by the Spirit and believe in Jesus. That translation enables them to connect and believe that he both loves us, takes care of us, and welcomes us, but that he will also judge us if we reject him. For the Sawi people, The moment of encountering God's love came in the midst of an intense, a period of intense conflict with a rival village. Don and Carol were feeling like their time was up. They had to think of their young children, and being chased out of town seemed like the right option. But it was in this moment that God showed them the path for the gospel. In all the treachery that governed the Sawi way of life, There was one way you could prove your trustworthiness when brokering a peace with another village, through the peace child. 
A chief would take his infant son and give him to the opposing village as a way to prove that he would not attack that village. He wouldn't break the truce as long as his son was alive and taken care of. This alone overcame the treachery. His love for his son made peace and trust grow. And that custom shined a light of Jesus in that village. Don explained that this, this peace child was what Jesus was from God to us. And for many, the penny dropped. People finally understood that their conflict with God and his effort to resolve it through Jesus, the gospel fit into their world as if God had designed the peace child specifically to change the hearts and minds of the Sawi people. When we do the work of translating the gospel for our neighbors and our friends, God's spirit moves them to faith. God uses what is old and familiar to show us the newness of his love. So as we turn to what does this mean for us in our moment, I think there's, there's a couple things. First, I want you to stop, and if you have a phone, maybe you can get it out and take a note, but we're going to take a moment to think about the places where you don't feel like God fits, the people who you know God doesn't fit with. And let's stop and let's pray into that space. As we go out, we need to be praying that God would provoke our hearts. As we go about the marketplace or we go on the school run, we need to be praying that God would move us, that God would show us where he fits, the questions he answers in the people's lives around us. On the back of that, I've got three other practical steps. Um, And this is where I'm going to cue the slides. So first, one is to get inspired. Um, This is the the book written by Don Richardson about um, his journey with the Sawi people. And um, the QR code there links to a book, you know, if you don't want to write it down. Um, It also links to a video where he and his sons went back 50 years later um, I mean, they'd been back dozens of times in the intervening times, but um, and kind of talks about the way that this transformed uh, the Sawi and, and the people around them. So um, one, get inspired. Think about how God has used the gospel in unique ways to transform the world. Second, get thinking. Think about the world around you. Think about what are the questions that are being asked in your classrooms or um, in, your, in your places of work? This book by Daniel Strange, uh, I think it was recommended at our uh, weekend away uh, last year. Um, it's called Making Faith Magnetic. And it's, it's thinking about some, some big themes in our culture that we're, we're constantly talking about and talking around and how the gospel might um, answer some of those questions. So maybe some food for thought if you're wrestling with How do I actually start a conversation? How do I start um, talking to somebody in my life who has these questions? Um, This might be a good uh, 
way to get you thinking about how that fits. And last, get out there. I would encourage you to take those people that you wrote down and you thought of and start a conversation with them. Start talking, asking them, how do they think God fits? Or where do they think God doesn't fit? But also, parish visiting um, is a great way to practice this. Um, it meets on, the next one is February 18th. Richard said that this is going to be a particularly tough uh, outing as they're going to a lot of blocks of flats where, for whatever reason, it's been harder to, um, to get access to and, and to have good conversations. So 2.30 on February 18th, and that's after, after Sunday, go away for lunch and come back. And we go out in pairs. You'll go out with somebody who has experience with this, and, um, and you get to know our neighbors and start practicing having questions. Maybe you'll go and have a conversation there that enables you to go and have that conversation with somebody at work or somebody um, in your life. So that's what I want us to take away from here, is <clears throat> thinking about how does God fit? How is God transforming uh, and how, what, what are the places that he wants us uh, to go out and translate um, the gospel for those around us? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that uh, you've spoken to us, Lord, that we can pray to you in our own language um, and that you understand us and that you hear us. God, we thank you that you have a heart for every single one of us, that you have a plan. And Lord, I pray that you would show us where you fit in our life and where you fit in the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.